from the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 27th. Today, the origins of the coronavirus, the Indian-American doctors helping a surge far from home, and a new abortion law. On Wednesday, President Biden made a fairly extraordinary set of statements about the origins of the pandemic. What he announced was that he had directed his intelligence agencies to, in his words, redouble their efforts to try and understand the origins of that pandemic. And he explained that there are basically two theories right now that the intelligence agencies are looking at. One is that the virus originated when an animal infected with the virus that causes COVID-19 infected a human, and then that human spread it to other people, so a kind of naturally occurring outbreak. The other is the so-called lab leak theory. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. He talked to editor Alexis Diao about that theory. And this is the idea that the virus actually originated in a laboratory, probably a very well-known one in Wuhan in China, and that it probably accidentally got out of that laboratory and infected humans. And for a long time, that was a fairly fringe theory. But what the president said was he wants the intelligence agencies to go back and look at that because there are some in the intelligence community that think that that lab leak hypothesis is plausible and that we need more evidence to determine whether it's true or what the real origins of the pandemic were. And why is the president saying this and why is he saying it now? I think that he wants to say this publicly now because there is momentum that is building and has been building for some weeks around this idea of the lab leak theory, that it's being seen as more credible. It's not to say that scientists and elected officials now believe, oh, it definitely came from a lab, but more and more serious people, including some who previously had frankly dismissed the idea, are now saying, hey, we need to take a closer look at this. As we have done throughout our COVID response, we have been committed to a whole of government effort to ensure we're doing everything to both understand and end this pandemic and to prevent future pandemics. This is why the president is asking the U.S. intelligence community in cooperation with other elements of our government to redouble efforts to collect and analyze information that could bring the world closer to a definitive conclusion on the origin of the virus and deliver a report to him again in 90 days. And a big driver for that is China. China has consistently blocked any full and thorough investigation by independent observers, by groups like the World Health Organization, into the origins of the pandemic. And the Biden administration has been very aware of that fact for for many months, that China was obstructing a full investigation of the origins of the pandemic. And so I think that you have that as kind of context and the fact that this idea around the lab leak is gaining more traction. There are conservative politicians as well who have been pushing this idea more for more information about it to be declassified. That's been happening in recent weeks. We're here tonight for a very simple reason with a very simple proposition, that the American people deserve to know 
about the origins of COVID-19. And there's increasing speculation and in indeed increasing numbers of statements from government officials saying that perhaps this virus originated in a Chinese lab in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, I think it's time that the American people got to decide for themselves. It's time that they actually got to see the evidence that the United States government has collected on this issue. So all of these forces are kind of driving on the president. But he did take this very unusual step to come out and personally announce that he was doing this and to share kind of where the intelligence agencies are on this theory right now. That was quite notable. If there's not a consensus within the intelligence community as to the origins of the coronavirus, then why was this theory dismissed at first? You could boil it down to Donald Trump. In the beginning of the outbreak, former President Trump was very quick to point the finger at China as the source of the pandemic. But I think that he went farther and he wanted to attribute some kind of sinister motive to the government of China, whether it was simple negligence that maybe this thing was being experimented with in a lab and they let it get out, or that they deliberately may have tried to concoct this virus or create it and it got out that way. And this sort of idea that China was doing something secretive and nefarious or reckless behind the scenes was one of the first rhetorical devices that the president deployed to try and arguably deflect blame off of his own administration's response. And I think within the scientific community, within certain political circles, there was an almost immediate allergic reaction to this idea of the lab leak, in large part because Donald Trump was promoting it, or people around him and other conservatives were promoting it. It's, it's hard to avoid the way in which Donald Trump's Racism and xenophobia and his history of lying and dissembling all get tangled up around this question of where did the pandemic come from. And also this lab in Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, is a widely respected, world-renowned laboratory that studies coronaviruses. And I think that a lot of the scientific community understandably took some offense at the idea that this lab was somehow reckless or irresponsible, or certainly that it would be involved in something as nefarious as deliberately trying to, to seed a pandemic. Earlier this year, the World Health Organization released its findings into the investigation into this theory, the lab leak theory. Tell me what they say they found and also what's happened since then. So this investigation convened by the WHO ultimately found that the lab leak was the least likely of the origins of the pandemic. So they said they did consider this. They went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They talked to people there, and they rated the lab leak as, as the lowest possibility. Then the head of the WHO comes out and I don't want to say disavows the report, but says, look, we don't know enough about the lab leak theory itself to actually say whether it's plausible or not. We need more information. And we didn't have the opportunity to get that information on this particular visit. And, you know, the reasons for that were... One, the Chinese government didn't give full access to the Wuhan lab and to its files and to its people there. And the other is that, you know, I think it's fair to say that the people who were on the team leading the, the investigation maybe were not experts in particularly in that kind of investigation uh, of, of trying to trace whether or not there was something going on inside a lab. So it really didn't have, I think, in the WHO's view, the right people on the team, but certainly they're not, not, not the right access. The Biden administration definitely feels that way. They issued a pretty forceful statement out of the White House 
saying that we don't think this is going to be a credible report because the Chinese government's not participating. It's not giving us full access. And President Biden, in his remarks this week, reiterated that point. Has there been any response from China? China's response has consistently been it didn't come from a lab. They have said that they have been full and open and transparent with this process. And this week have switched to deploying another tactic, which they've done in the past, which is trying to point to other countries as potentially the source of the outbreak. They've pointed to the United States. They've pointed to the idea that there was contaminated meat that was frozen that came into China from outside China, and that's where it started. There's really not evidence of that, we should say. But the Chinese government wants to change the subject and shift this back onto other countries' responsibilities. It also wants to clearly move on from this. What will you be looking for next? So what I'm looking for now is more information about what the U.S. intelligence community knows about this lab leak theory. In the final days of the Trump administration, the State Department did put out what they called a fact sheet on activity at the Wuhan Institute, which lays out a number of very interesting pieces of evidence that, according to my sources, were drawn from U.S. intelligence And it kind of stands as the most definitive public document on what it is that the people in the government who lean towards the lab leak theory, like, what do they know? It's clearly not everything being revealed publicly, so I want to know what's more underneath that. There have also been reports coming out in recent days about lab workers in the Wuhan Institute who got sick in November of 2019. So before we really saw the first cases of COVID breaking out in Wuhan, people who got sick with symptoms like COVID-19, although it's not been clear that those were COVID-19 cases, I wanna know more about that. Who are these workers? Did they really have COVID? Where is their blood sample? Can we go back and test it for antibodies? How long were they in the hospital? These are questions that I think the US government probably has more answers to than it's revealing now. I'm not confident that those answers would be illuminating on the problem, but these are the kind of questions that me and other reporters are asking now is give us more specificity on what it is that you say that you know. What does the reemergence of this lab leak theory mean for our understanding of where the virus came from? The reason it's important to understand the origins is because it will lead us to the steps that we need to take to try and prevent another pandemic. So if it's a naturally occurring outbreak and we can find the reservoir, as it's known, sort of the place with the original animal population where it came from, we could take steps to, you know, cordon that place off, ensure that there is more safety built around it, develop vaccines, obviously, something we've already done. There are all kinds of things that that knowing where the virus came from in a natural scenario would help us to do to stop future outbreaks. If, in fact, it came from a lab, then we have to say, okay, do we then demand that the lab be shut down? Was there research of a particular kind going on inside the lab that is simply too dangerous to do in that lab or any lab, and we should stop doing that? There are people who feel that there was a particular kind of research going on in the Wuhan Institute that is quite dangerous in general and shouldn't be practiced. It would also mean a great deal in terms of our relationship with China. I mean, if we were to learn that China or a lab in China that is, let's be very clear, like is effectively controlled by the government in China, as this one is, because of recklessness or or sloppiness was responsible for the worst pandemic in a century, you know, that's killed millions of people that brought the world's economies to its knees, that is going to significantly alter the world's relationship with China. 
Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. He talked to Alexis Diao, an editor for Post Reports. The story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. I've been very focused on the coronavirus crisis in India recently. So I'm based here in the U.S., but the story is also personal for me. I'm an Indian immigrant. I'm seeing what's happening among my colleagues and my friends and my family members. And we're all terrified about what's happening. Fennett Nirapil is a health reporter for The Post. The central theme of my work has been the crisis in India is also an American crisis. because we have more than 4 million people of Indian origin in the United States. And what's happening across our borders is affecting people within our borders, too. And, you know, I think as the pandemic has gone on, we've seen surges in different countries. We've seen surges here. I think many of us know that feeling of feeling very far away from our family who are in other countries when we're worried about them or when they're worried about us. But I'm wondering in this particular situation for the Indian diaspora in the U.S., like what are the ways where they are feeling that inability to be helpful to family who's kind of in in the thick of this crisis. So right now, a lot of uh, people who are in India are in this situation where if they can find a hospital bed, they still have to fend for themselves to get oxygen, to get plasma. I've talked to Indian Americans who are spending late nights on WhatsApp trying to find oxygen for their loved ones, trying to find plasma for their loved ones. This is all the kind of materials that you would think a hospital would have, the reasons you go to a hospital in the first place. But the run on medical supplies and the stress on the healthcare system means many families are having to fend for themselves. And I think it's particularly striking or bizarre that that's something that people here in the States are trying to orchestrate from so far away. Like, that's how dramatic the situation has become, that even people on the other side of the planet are like, what can I do to try to get oxygen to a family member in a hospital? Yeah, I mean, even in India, a lot of people are also using social media. They're using WhatsApp, trying to find WhatsApp groups to get these basic materials. So it is the kind of thing that you can do from the U.S., just like people are doing in India. And what are some of the other ways that you've seen Indian Americans trying to offer some help? So Indian Americans are disproportionately represented in the healthcare force in the United States. But for a lot of those doctors who are now finally starting to get a breath in the U.S., they're seeing what's happening in their motherland or in their parents' motherland, and they want to help out. You can't write a prescription from the United States, but you can see a patient over video chat. You can offer people medical advice. So I've been hearing from doctors who are just very informally calling other doctors that they know over WhatsApp. And those doctors are asking for advice on how to give out steroid medication, on what symptoms to watch for, on when to tell a patient to go to a hospital. And these are all lessons and experiences that doctors in the United States who've been treating coronavirus patients have learned that they can now impart on their colleagues in India. And the other issue that we're seeing is that there's rampant misinformation about COVID and about how to treat patients who have coronavirus in India. So can you tell me about some of the people that you've talked to who are trying to navigate this situation? 
Yeah, so in addition to some of these like unofficial calls where people are talking to their families and loved ones, there are some organized efforts going on too. So the American Association of Physicians of Indian Origin, they're organizing this telehealth platform where as many as 100 patients can come on at one given session to talk to a an assortment of uh, Indian American doctors were volunteering. It's over Zoom, but it's a secure version of Zoom where people are assigned to different breakout rooms where a doctor can give individual advice to individual patients. So one of these uh, telehealth sessions that I watched, it had three different screens. There was a doctor, Anup Katil. He's an ICU physician in Missouri calling in from his home in Chesterfield, Missouri. There is a f- the family, the Garg family, who are in New Delhi at home dealing with mild to moderate cases of coronavirus. And then from Texas, there is a relative in the Garg family, Shatin Garg, who has been serving as an intermediary because he's healthy. All of my family members, they got infected with COVID. My father, my brother, my sister-in-law, their son, and doctors and hospitals were not able to keep up uh, with the number of the patients that were coming in. He's helping his family members who've all contracted the virus navigate the medical system, collect their medical records, and he's the one who ultimately found this telehealth service that would connect them to a doctor here in the United States. So when I learned about this platform, the first thing you know that I had to do is uh, to fill a patient form, which I did quickly. And the moment you know I joined the Zoom conversation, uh, I was allowed to uh, have a conversation with Dr. Katyal to talk about a specific of what I'm, you know, trying to seek help on. He reviewed patient information. My, my brother, my father also joined uh, the conversation uh, with him. And he started, you know, looking into all the details and started looking into what need to be done. And from day one, you know, he, he started helping with what we need the most. And so what kind of help can Dr. Katyal actually provide to the Garg family? Well, first and foremost, he can just look at them. Like, yes, he's not there to place a stethoscope on their chest or to conduct any exams, but he can look to see how uh, the patients with coronavirus are breathing, how they're able to string together sentences, how they're able to walk. And he's looking at them to get a sense of where they are in the disease and how medications are working. He can listen to them describe their symptoms, describe uh, where their oxygen levels are and how they've been sleeping through the night. And then he can give them advice on how to best use the steroids. So one of the issues that this family was telling me about is they can't get through to a doctor because local doctors have their phones shut off, doctors' offices are closed, and a lot of the physicians who are treating coronavirus patients are tied up with the most severe cases of people who are gasping for air, who need to be put on ventilators or to be put on oxygen. And the few doctors that they have been able to reach through on WhatsApp, they're all giving the same exact advice and the same recommendations for a collection of medication without really looking at the individual circumstances, the individual medical histories. And that's where a doctor like Anup Khatil steps in. I was able to connect, you know, via video and see how they were doing. And obviously they had forwarded all the labs and, you know, scans, etc., which I could review and uh, so give my opinion. So it so happened that I met them the first day, then they followed up the second day, third day and fourth day. And each day we kept talking and uh, he had more and more questions. And uh, that's how I came to know the Garg family. 
he's able to look through their medical records. He's able to look through their lab reports. He's able to see how their symptoms are changing over time and tell them, hey, you need more steroids at this point. You need to go off those steroids because it's reaching the point where it's getting riskier more than beneficial. And at one point, he told the father of the family that it was time for him to go to the hospital with his symptoms getting worse. So for for the Garg family, like what what does it mean to them to be able to have access to a doctor that can actually focus on them and their needs in the middle of this crisis? It provides some relief because they are navigating this world where they don't really know what to do. It's hard to find a doctor. You are competing with thousands of other people who are all desperate and searching for whatever morsels of information they can find. There's a lot of unreliable, unvetted information out there. That's where having a doctor who's actually treated coronavirus patients and has capacity comes in. And I want to, I also want to be clear here that, you know, Dr. Kathil and even the family, like, they don't want to be too critical of the doctors in India because just like the doctors in the U.S. during the winter surge or in the early days of the pandemic here, they are under so many demands. They're trying to treat dozens of patients at once and are trying to keep people alive while also being exposed to the virus themselves and having their own family members and loved ones. So it's understandable why uh, doctors don't have the full capacity that they do. And that's why American doctors are trying to step in. And it's really not just American doctors, because India has been a pipeline for doctors all across the world. And they're trying to give back to the country that kickstarted their careers. I think that's such an important point to acknowledge the reasons why these doctors in India are under kind of impossible strains. Uh, I'm wondering for for a doctor like Dr. Katyal, who is able to help from the U.S., what does this mean to him? I mean, does he find some comfort in being able to provide a little bit of help, even if it's from very far away? Absolutely. When he sees what's happening in India, it hurts because that's where he was born. That's where he went to medical school. I am 54 years old. I spent 26 years of my life in India. So those roots are still there. I still have a lot of relatives, the medical school I went to. So even before I came across this platform, on WhatsApp, I was getting tons and tons of messages about, about you know, management of COVID. This sort of preceded even this, you know, surge in India. So it uh, didn't come as a surprise that, you know, I should uh, at least volunteer my services, whichever way I can to help out. Do you feel like this phenomenon is a new way to be tackling COVID as surges pop up around the world? Yeah, this is a stopgap measure. And even with American doctors uh, offering advice to uh, patients in India, there are still legal liability concerns. And there's a fine line between providing uh, medical advice, which is permissible, and providing medical care, which is not. Some advocates for Indian American doctors say a lot more doctors would be willing to help if the Indian government was willing to relax liability rules. But so far, the Indian American doctors group that I've been that I have been speaking to says the Indian embassy hasn't responded to their entreaties. You know, as noble as the intention of these doctors are, their efforts are really only making a dent in the healthcare crisis in India right now, where you have more than 300,000 people a day who are becoming infected with coronavirus and more than 4,000 people a day who are dying. 
several hundred doctors were in the hundreds and thousands who were offering advice from afar. It's bringing relief to a lot of families and to a lot of the doctors themselves who want to help out. But it's not a fix for the situation in India, or it's not a, it's not a way to stop the healthcare system from collapsing. Bennett Nirapil is a health reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Lena Mohammed. And now, one more thing. Last week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a new abortion bill into law. Our creator endowed us with the right to life. And yet, millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. In Texas, we work to save those lives. This law bans abortions starting as early as six weeks into a pregnancy, even in the case of rape or incest. That makes it one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. This law also gives anyone in Texas the power to sue anyone connected to an abortion. The person who got the abortion can be sued. Their doctors and nurses and even family members could potentially be sued. The implications of this law have many reproductive health experts very worried, including Dr. Jen Gunter, an obstetrician and writer. We're talking about two weeks after the missed period, basically. And, you know, many people don't know that they're pregnant then. Very few people have initiated prenatal care by six weeks, right? And so I think by by using this incredibly early phase in the pregnancy, it's basically a de facto abortion ban. Obviously, there may be some people who are able to get in for, you know, medical abortions in that time frame, people who realized that they had, you know, unprotected sex during a period of time when they were vulnerable. As soon as they had their their period was missed, they were on it, pregnancy test calling. But that's, you know, in truth, a very small percentage of the population. So can you also talk through what are the exceptions to this law and the situations where people could still get an abortion at a later date? in Texas? So there's, you know, exception for a medical emergency. And it's really written in very vague terms. Um, You know, if you believe that uh, there is a medical emergency, then you have to document it in the chart and why that necessitates an abortion. So there's nothing, I mean, how do you define a medical emergency? Usually most lawyers, in my experience, define it as, well, you're like an immediate risk of death. Well, no, I mean, good medicine is treating people before you're at immediate risk of death. Hmm. What are some of your other concerns about the long-term impacts that this law could have in Texas? Well, you know, one of the big concerns about restrictive legislation is that people lose the skills to do abortion. If it becomes just too complex to do, fewer people are going to do it. I mean, if you don't have legal protection, if anybody can sue you 
for your practice. You know, why would doctors want to move to Texas to do that? Why would people want to stay after they do their training? People would are just going to give it up, especially the more advanced procedures. You know, the ones that, you know, you can do with a vacuum aspiration in the clinic or medical abortion, you know, those can be done kind of in a more private setting. But when you're doing an abortion for someone 16, 17 weeks or later, you know, that really requires a very specific skill set. And when someone is actually really ill and their life depends on it, they may not be able to get that care. You know, it seems like we've seen this wave of abortion cases coming up to the Supreme Court, and it does feel like it's part of an effort to dismantle, essentially, the rights guaranteed by Roe v. Wade. Is that a concern for you that at some point so many of these laws are going to be passed in states around the country that we will essentially be reversing what what Roe v. Wade provided to women? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly the point. You know, the point is to chip away and chip away. And, uh, you know, let's be frank, abortion laws are about fundraising for the Republican Party. There's nothing medical about them. And so I think that there are going to be states where very little changes, you know, for example, maybe New York and California and and a few other states where there's protections. And then there's going to be a large swath of the country where abortion is essentially illegal or impossible to obtain. It it feels like we're sort of on a juggernaut right now, that that's where the train is going. And uh, hopefully I'm wrong. Dr. Jen Gunter is an OBGYN and the author of the new book, The Menopause Manifesto. Emma Talkoff produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernowski. As we move into a world where some people are vaccinated and some people are not vaccinated, there are a ton of complicated social questions coming up. And we are planning to talk to Carolyn Hacks, the advice columnist at The Post. We want to bring her questions about things like dating as a vaccinated person and navigating office life again and dealing with social anxiety as we head back into the world. So if you have any questions that you would like to ask Carolyn, submit a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com and we will try our best to get some answers from her. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.